0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Slavery and the British Empire have proven to be some of history's most debated subjects in recent years. And on today's episode, we'll be exploring how the two were intertwined. Joining me for today's conversation was Patrick Scanlon, author of Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain, who told me about the ways that slavery fueled the British Empire and some of the complicated motivations of abolitionists. So your new book, Slave Empire, it looks at the ways in which Britain and its empire was powered by slavery. And it also looks at how anti-slavery and abolition were much more complicated than we might first assume, What are some of the biggest conceptions about Britain's abolition of slavery that you've come across?
1: So I think most people understand uh, that British imperial history is entangled with slavery, um, that Britain's colonies in the Atlantic world, in the Caribbean, in the colonies that became the United States, um, made extensive use of enslaved labor, uh, particularly in the 18th century. But I think there's a kind of national myth um, in Britain that Britain may have been Uh, a a very enthusiastic slave trader and a very enthusiastic employer of enslaved labor, but that in the 19th century, Britain turned against slavery and kind of reversed um, the the polarity of its empire. It went from being an empire devoted to slavery to an empire devoted to freedom. And not only an an empire that abolished slavery, uh, but an empire that actively kind of prosecuted anti-slavery wars. Uh, And I think that that's that's just not true. Um, And one of the core arguments of my book, Slave Empire, is that you can't understand the anti-slavery movement in Britain without understanding the ways that it is entangled with the rise of the British Empire in the 18th century. So Britain built its empire, this empire that in the Victorian era was very proudly an empire of free trade, free labor, um, and... Political freedom throughout the world, but that empire was entangled with and couldn't be separated from the empire that was built on slavery in the 18th century. So the institutions of British imperial power, especially in the Atlantic world, were built on slavery, uh, and those foundations survived the abolition of slavery. So the idea that anti-slavery reversed uh, the British Empire and turned it from kind of a uh, from from an an empire of slavery into an empire of liberty just just isn't true.
0: Yeah, um, I think that that is one of the most fascinating aspects of your book, this idea that Britain used abolition in the narrative about itself to say, we have learned from the past and now we're morally superior. How did that take on abolition, that idea that Britain had moved beyond slavery and become morally superior, actually help aid imperialist aims?
1: Well, let me give you an example. Um, so in the in the 1850s and 1860s, uh, Britain had... Abandoned its association with with enslaved labor, um, you know, since since the the, the abolition of colonial slavery in in the 1830s, since the abolition of the British slave trade in 1807. Uh, But in West Africa, uh, Britain had ambitions or British merchants had ambitions of taking over uh, the palm oil trade. Um, and so one of the kind of key reasons for the British takeover of what became eventually the Nigeria Protectorate, so the, the, the kind of uh, shelling of Lagos in the 1860s, was anti-slavery. Um, so Britain was able to, in the name of abolishing the slave trade and in the name of enforcing the abolition of the slave trade, uh, was able to effectively, you know, seize territory, especially in West Africa. Uh, and that's a kind of very specific example, but... Anti-slavery gave impetus to all kinds of projects for British imperial reform, uh, and and if you want to think of a kind of core ideological uh, foundation of the Victorian British Empire, it was this idea of civilization, right? That 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 Britain represented. Uh, the summit of civilization and that Britain's role as an empire was to teach civilization to either the places that it conquered directly, uh, the places where it sent settlers by the millions or the places where its economic influence reached. Um, And that idea of civilization got a lot of power from anti-slavery, right? What better proof of Britain's moral superiority than Britain's claim to have been the first European empire uh, to have disengaged itself first from the slave trade and then from slavery. So that that concept was uh, a really powerful one in the Victorian Empire of the 19th century. Um, and it kind of put the lie to uh, the fact of Britain's continuing involvement in slavery in the 19th century. So, I mean, the, the, the kind of core product of industrializing Britain was with cotton. Um, and Britain's primary source of raw cotton was the United States of America. Uh, And cotton in the U.S. was overwhelmingly produced by enslaved laborers in the the American South. Uh, And at the same time, the other kind of core product that Britain offered to the world in the 19th century was financial services. Uh, And so Britons didn't own enslaved people or claim to own enslaved people, uh, but plenty of British investors owned, for example, bonds issued by the states in the United by the Southern States um, in the U S states that were founded on enslaved labor and on the, the the kind of uh, power of slaveholders. Um, And so just to give one, one final example. So in 1837, in part because of um, adjustments to the interest rates made by the bank of England to benefit British investors, there was a wave of bankruptcies across the United States, the panic of 1837. Um, And, one of the features of slaveholding both in the 18th century when it was a major institution in the British empire and in the 19th century when it was no longer officially part of the British empire, uh, but absolutely deeply connected, um, to British imperial interests was a uh, heavy debt, right? To be a slaveholder was to be heavily mortgaged. Uh, and so fluctuations in interest rates would mean bankruptcies. And in 1837, um, slaveholders across the American South went bankrupt. Um, and for an enslaved person, a bankruptcy could mean a family separation. It could mean the kind of destruction of whatever very fragile um, stability uh, an enslaved person might have uh, living on a plantation, right? Because if a slaveholder went bankrupt, they would liquidate their estate, which would also include um, the, the the claims they made in, 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 in human beings. Um, and there were British and American abolitionists met in in 1840 at the World Anti-Slavery Conference and American abolitionists complained. They said, you know, Britain can claim to be an anti-slavery empire, but when the slaveholders and American states defaulted in 1837, Britain's benefited from that because they were able to effectively own bonds in uh, the American South um, and then sell them when uh, it was profitable to do so. And, you know, I think many British anti-slavery activists were aware of this uh, and many of them tried to avoid making these kinds of investments. But also many leading British anti-slavery activists were deeply involved in the financial services industries. So you can see instances of kind of conscience stricken Britons, um, you know, speaking to their peers in the anti-slavery movement in the U.S., talking about how, you know, any banker, no matter how committed to anti-slavery he might be, uh, is still going to have to trade in financial instruments that are deeply connected to slavery. So Britain's position as the financial capital of the world meant that it still had an enormous stake in slavery throughout the 19th century, but its official stance as an anti-slavery empire allowed it to both profit from slavery while disavowing it.
0: So it seems like this is all predicated on a huge amount of hypocrisy, in that Britain was selling itself as morally superior and they'd done the right thing by abolishing slavery, but actually underneath it all was still heavily entangled.
1: Yeah, I mean I think part of the problem with thinking about slavery and anti-slavery in the past is exactly what you've hit upon, this kind of problem of, of hypocrisy. Um because I think It's maybe not quite right to think of it as hypocritical. One of the deep veins and something that I try to explore in the book, one of the deep veins of anti-slavery thought was this uh, idea that commerce could be a civilizing force. Right. And and so, you know, in in a sense, I think anti-slavery activists understood that their investments were related to slavery in some way, but they also thought that they could be purified and that if you could only figure out how to rectify and correct the kind of financial system, um, commerce would be a, a, a powerful force for civilization and for kind of healing the rifts within the empire and, and the, the, the kind of uh, resolving the slavery-anti-slavery dispute. And that's something that reached all the way back to the 18th century, right? If you think about um, some of the... Uh, sort of black British writers who were reflecting on their relationship to slavery in the 18th century, people like Aloud Equiano. Um, you know, Equiano was as committed an anti slavery activist as you could get in the 18th century. But at the same time, in his interesting narrative, in his autobiography, um, he concludes. And, and I guess it's an open question, the degree to which this was a kind of nod to his patrons and the degree to which this kind of represented his own ideas about empire. But the interesting narrative ends with a kind of reimagining of what the British empire could look like without slavery. Um, and it's not a, a kind of um, sort of a world of, of, of equals trading equally. It's a world where Britain remains the premier imperial power, but where slavery has been removed from the equation and where commerce, stripped of this kind of uh, defacement of slavery, could heal the world. And so I think for anti-slavery activists all through the 19th century, there is an element of hypocrisy. If you can understand how deeply they felt that capitalism was a force for moral good, Uh, and a force for healing, then it it helps to understand exactly where they were coming from.
0: I'll pick up on that point about capitalism, perhaps in a minute. But I I think that that is something that's kind of quite hard to wrap your head around from a twentieth 21st se- century perspective that I think in our minds anti-slavery and anti-imperialism would pretty much go hand in hand and you would assume that if somebody held one set of those beliefs they'd probably tend towards the other but what's really intriguing here is that is that they weren't really connected in that way at the time that many like, anti-slavery activists like you say weren't anti-imperialist can you kind of unpick that for us a bit?
1: So from the beginning I think it's important to remember that that British anti-slavery, at least. And I, I think we can bracket that out from other anti-slavery movements in, in other slave-holding societies, uh, particularly the United States, where the trajectory of abolitionism is, is very different, um, in part because the United States, by the Civil War, had a population of, of millions of, of, of enslaved people living within the country, right? And for, for Britons living in Britain, um, slavery was something that kind of happened over there, right? So from the beginning... Slavery was an imperial issue uh, for the British Empire. Um, And the 18th century empire was an empire built on trade. uh, And trade was the source of Britain's kind of remarkable rise uh, to global domination. Uh, And Britain, unlike France, had a vision of colonies as like islands of the spirit of Britain rather than literal extensions of the polity itself. So a French colony was in a sense, especially after the revolution, like a part of France in a constitutional sense, whereas Britain's colonies were sort of experiments in, in commerce and expansion and settlement. Uh, and so they all had kind of different trajectories and different, and different um, constitutions. Uh, and so I think it was impossible for, British abolitionists for whom this project of civilization was such an important part of what they understood anti-slavery to be, to imagine that anti-slavery could be accomplished without an empire. Uh, Because otherwise, you know, what would be the anti-slavery project in Britain without the empire? There were no enslaved people in Britain. Um, except for the people who had been brought over from the colonies, sort of by force, by slaveholders. Um, And I think many Britons, even in the kind of 18th century, were sort of skeptical of that, of the idea that enslaved people should be on British soil. So anti-slavery was always an imperial project. Um, And the empire was the thing that gave it force, uh, and the thing that gave it kind of grandeur in the world. From the very beginning, anti-slavery projects in the British Empire were about reforming the empire, not disengaging from it. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the the anti-slavery project for Britain was imperial, I think, by, by definition.
0: And of course, then you would argue that that imperialist viewpoint would shape The future that abolitionists, and I'm talking about white British abolitionists, would see for enslaved people, what kind of reformed world were they aiming for after um, emancipation or abolition?
1: And I think you can sort of see what kind of world British anti-slavery activists and politicians and colonial officials imagine by looking at what happened in this this what I call the slave Empire in the book, uh, the the Empire of Colonies in the Caribbean that in the 18th century were devoted to sugar production and which poured so much money uh, back into Britain during the 18th century. Um, and the Emancipation Act, uh, the 1833 abolition of slavery act that ended slavery in the Britain's colonies in 1834 had three pillars um, and the first pillar was compensation uh, and so in slaveholders in the Empire received 20 million pounds of compensation for uh, the claims they had made in 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 enslaved people um, under slavery uh, and 20 million pounds I think it's it's sort of hard to understand from a present day perspective of what 20 million pounds meant. Uh, this was a vast sum. It was a very substantial portion of the entire annual budget. Um, and it was raised through a really novel set of loans. Sort of, So sort of, sort of, there were tenders floated on British financial markets and big banks in Britain bid uh, made bids on on who would be able to supply the government these twenty million pounds in compensation. You can see one principle of the post slavery empire, which is property. Um, so the eighteenth century empire was was built on property. Um, you know to be a member of parliament, you had to own a substantial amount of property. And I think that didn't change throughout the 19th century. So if there was one thing that Britain did not want to do when it abolished slavery, it did not want to in any way threaten the security of property. Uh, it needed to indicate to the world and to slaveholders, many of whom were very prominent members of British society, that although that, that, that although that their, that their property was safe um, and I think anti-slavery activists immediately tried to spin, and you can see actually if you, and I don't necessarily recommend this, but you can read easily online all of the debates about the 1833 Emancipation Act. And you can see Thomas Fole Buxton, one of the leaders of the anti-slavery movement and kind of the leader in parliament of of abolitionism in the 1830s, um, spin from one day to the next, uh, from, from opposing compensation to casting it as a kind of grand national sacrifice. Uh, that Britain had accumulated all of this wealth and now it had expiated its guilt uh, by spending 20 million pounds. So that's, that's one property and you can see that, that that's one principle. Um, the second feature of the Emancipation Act was apprenticeship. Uh, an apprenticeship required the some you know, hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved people in the Caribbean uh, to become at a stroke apprentices. Um, and apprentices were free. Uh, they were no longer considered legally to be chattel. Uh, but they were still required to work um, for, you know, if they had worked on sugar plantations upwards of 40 hours a week, um, if they had been tradespeople um, or kind of occupying sort of elite jobs, obviously as, as enslaved people on plantations, they were required to work um, sort of full-time uh, without wages. They were required to kind of sell their labor in their free time, right? The, the, the time that they were not um, working... Uh, uh, under coercion as apprentices, they required to sell those extra hours. So
0: that that sounds a lot like slavery. Really, it sounds like a new form of slavery.
1: Yeah, uh, but it was in, it was didactic, and that's one of the other features I think of, of anti slavery. Uh, it was supposed to teach enslaved people how to earn wages, um, and to and, and that was you know a concern in Britain. Uh, You know, in the in the 1830s, um, agricultural workers throughout the British southeast were burning um, threshing machines and hayricks and uh, figuring out the correct rate of wages to both keep British workers showing up every day without giving them enough wages that they could not show up uh, was a very live issue for parliament as well as for property holders. So that's another principle of the post-slavery empire, this idea of wage labor as not only a kind of uh, necessity, but also a kind of moral good. Um, There was this, I I think anti-slavery activists really thought that by teaching, that, that, that you could teach people how to be wage workers. Now there's two other features of this. First of all, I mean, enslaved people understood wages already. Right. um, The kind of one of the last great slave revolts in the British Empire, the Baptist War in Jamaica in 1831, 1832, led by Samuel Sharp, who was an enslaved Baptist deacon. Um, One of the demands of the leaders of that revolt was a rate of wages um, that Sharp and and his co-conspirators arrived at by looking at the rate that... um, Parish workhouses that employed enslaved convicts in Jamaica charged to other white slaveholders for a day's labor, and so Sharp and his and his co-conspirators thought, well, if this is what white slaveholders think a day's work is worth, this is what we will ask for. And so enslaved people already understood what wages were. Um, so the the problem was how to keep formerly enslaved people working on the plantations. And so that was another principle of of anti-slavery. And the third element of the Emancipation Act was stipendiary magistracy, which sounds kind of grandiose, but it meant replacing um, the law of slaveholders in the Caribbean with imperial law, sending people who were mostly drawn from the officer class to bring the slave colonies into line with the rest of the imperial legal system and turn enslaved people into a a kind of wage earning, like rural proletariat. Although of course, abolitionists would not have thought of it in those terms. So, you know, the project of, of emancipation is both extremely grand and, and deeply moral, right? Like I'm not trying to argue in any way that the abolition of slavery was not a, a, a moral achievement or a, a milestone in, in human history, but at the same time, I think we need to be aware that it was an imperial project and that it reflected the priorities uh, and the interests of a tranche of the British upper class and upper middle class. And it reflected their values. And it was not like the freedom that enslaved people wanted and the freedom that Victorian liberals imposed upon enslaved people were two very, very different things.
0: I think those points are, re- are really important to raise, aren't they, to dig down into those logistics. Because I think if you just read on paper, slavery was abolished, but it's not exactly like the clock turned midnight and suddenly everyone was free and could go wherever they wanted. And I think that digging down into the logistics of how you kind of execute a massive scheme like that actually reveals a lot. I just wanted to ask you actually about the first point that you mentioned there, which was compensation. And I think a lot of people would be shocked or surprised to hear that it's the slave owners rather than the formerly enslaved people that got compensation. And as you say there, it was framed as a great national sacrifice that Britain had paid out this money. But can we kind of trace where that £20 million went? Because surely then it's flowing back into the British imperial system. Is that right?
1: Yes. One of the great things about working in the kind of digital age as an historian is that a lot of this material is available kind of at at your fingertips if you have an internet connection. Um, And so University College London uh, put together a really spectacular database called the Legacies of British Slave Ownership uh, that has digitized and assembled as a database who made claims on enslaved people in the compensation fund. You know, I, I have not done the work of reconstructing where Every single where 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 most compensation money went, uh, but I think it's pretty clear where some comp- compensation money went. I mean, there are definitely records. Um, some seri- major slaveholders who invested in land in places like uh, Lower Canada, right in, in Quebec. Um, there were uh, former slaveholders who invested in railroads, um, there or in bridges or in canals and kind of big infrastructure projects. Um, there were. Slaveholders who kind of poured compensation money back into plantations. Uh, so there were certainly some slaveholders who tried to kind of mechanize their plantations um, to, to replace the need for um, the really, really heavy labor demands that plantation agriculture, especially of sugar, required. You know, this, this 20 million pounds absolutely was, was reinjected into all kinds of spheres of British economic life.
0: Actually, while we're talking about money, I just wanted to return to your point about um, capitalism. And the idea is that if you let markets kind of do their own thing, then they would end in the moral right. Can you explain a little bit more about how those ideas worked and how they connected to slavery?
1: One of the most misunderstood um, figures in the present, at least from the age of enlightenment um, is Adam Smith. Um, So in, in Wealth of Nations and in Theory of Moral Sentiments, which are, I think most people think of Smith and think of um, Wealth of Nations, or just think of The Invisible Hand, um, if they think of anything. Uh, but Smith was also famous for work of moral philosophy called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, and so Smith imagined that there were certain kinds of sort of human instincts that if they were given free reign and not constrained, would result in good consequences. So the theory of the, his, his idea of the invisible hand was that if you permitted uh, people to work in, with, without regulation, without constraint, in a system with fair laws, uh, over time you would see development Uh, positive development, better organization, more productivity, and also more social harmony, as though guided by an invisible hand. And in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith had this idea of the man within, right? That that you have um, this this instinctive regard for other people. Morality is an instinct. um, And that commerce is an instinct. And that idea that absent constraint, uh, morality and commerce would both kind of Uh, rise together uh, was deeply embedded in British political economy and British politicians ideas about what markets were like. Right. I think beginning with Smith and, you know, reinforced throughout. And I mean, I think to return to our point about hypocrisy, right, there is an element, there's a deeply self-serving element of thinking this way. Um, But at the same time, I think it's not necessarily fair to imagine that every, sort of free market profit in the early 19th century in the Victorian empire, every kind of uh, uh, advocate of laissez faire social policy was actually kind of a devious calculating hypocrite. Um, Although it's sort of fun to say that. And, you know, I think we can see with the benefit of hindsight that, that, that free markets harmed a lot of people in the 19th century. Um, But I think British political economists um, following Smith were A, very, very influential in Parliament.
0: Still to come on the History Extra
1: podcast. The rebellion wasn't a sophisticated political revolt, uh, but was a kind of like, almost like an animalistic rising, right? Because it couldn't have been a sophisticated political revolt because that would uh, kind of put the lie to the logic of amelioration.
0: (laughs) It's hard to tell whether it's it's kind of wrongheaded optimism or whether it's a self-congratulatory tale of we did the right thing and now look at us, we're really prosperous. But from our perspective now, both seem very kind of misguided.
1: That's, I think, one of the challenges about thinking about anti-slavery in the past, because I mean, I think slavery, particularly the transatlantic slave trade and plantation slavery are world historical evils, right? They were enormously destructive. It made a small number of slaveholders very wealthy, um, and it it ruined a lot of the world, right? From a 21st century perspective, it's easy to kind of say, like, slavery is bad, obviously. Anti-slavery is good, obviously. But anti-slavery was a very complicated phenomenon. Um, and I think... You know, I think it's 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 important to think about just how popular anti-slavery was in Britain when we reflect on it, right? Anti-slavery, especially the abolition of the British slave trade in 1807, was celebrated throughout the country as a patriotic triumph. Um, and I think, and this is maybe cynical of me, but I think anything that is that popular can't possibly be as radical as we would like it to be, right? Uh, and, and so I think... And, and, and even the, the abolition of slavery in the 1830s, I think many historians have tried to make the move of kind of separating the anti-slavery movement into two parts, a parliamentary part that is kind of cynical and horse trading and willing to make concessions, and then a kind of uh, a public activist part that is sort of always in the right. But even that kind of activist wing of the anti-slavery movement—I mean, they opposed compensation absolutely. The anti-slavery society's membership were very hostile to compensation. They were very hostile to apprenticeship, and I think we can say from the 21st century, like those are positions that we think are that that seem more appealing um, and that seem like the correct moves. But at the same time, you know, many um, sort of of the, the the kind of anti-compensation, anti-apprenticeship wing of the anti-slavery society uh were very hope that the stipendiary magistrates hope that the the kind of that british law could impose order on the lives of um of of, of freed people in the caribbean that you didn't need compensation or, or apprenticeship because the law itself would be able to control um and educate and civilize freed people after slavery. Maybe the lesson we can learn from the history of anti slavery is that looking for these kinds of heroes in the past and imagining that what is heroic in the past is identical to what we think is heroic in the present is always, is either going to require distorting the historical record or being disappointed. Um, you know, like Thomas Full Buxton, for example, the leader of the anti slavery movement in Parliament, you know, I think there were many people in Britain who did not want slavery to be abolished and Full Buxton did. Um, And he was willing to kind of stand up in parliament and pose some very, very powerful interests uh, when he, when he led the campaign for the abolition of slavery. But Thomas Full Buxton was, you know, he was a a prominent brewery owner. So Truman's brewery used to be Truman and Buxton. Um, And, uh, you know, and he opposed, Uh, fair wages for brewery workers. Um, He preferred private charity to any kind of sort of out of doors relief. You know, if you start to excavate these people's ideas, looking for somebody who's going to agree with us entirely in the present, you're never going to find it. And so reckoning with the history of anti-slavery means reckoning with the ideologies of the people and the interests of the people who oppose slavery as much as it means reckoning with slave ownership itself.
0: I think that raises an interesting point. I've spoken to various different historians about different aspects of kind of imperial history and slavery over the last year or so. And I think that what you say there about, you know, challenging this notion of having heroes is is quite difficult for a lot of people in Britain today to kind of get their head around, because I think that it is ingrained in our national narrative that say William Wilberforce um, abolitionism was a great moral win. And I think for a lot of people, having that challenged, even with facts and with history and with nuance, is very difficult to take on board. Is that something that you've come across when you're communicating your research?
1: Yeah, I understand it, right? I I understand why, you know, you would hear something like this, you know, hear this kind of plea, I guess, for to recognize both the achievement of anti-slavery, but also its complexity, And kind of fall back on these um, reflexive responses, right? Well, France did it also. Or look at the Belgian empire in the Congo. They were the worst of all. And Britain stopped that, you know? Um, And and I think in my own country, in in Canada, right? I think Canada's relationship to slavery is like, well, it never existed here. Um, Which is, on the one hand, like, literally true because the country of Canada established by the British North America Act in 1867 never had enslaved people within its borders. Um, And there were enslaved people in the colonies that became Canada before the abolition of slavery, Uh, but they were very few because Canada is too cold to have plantations. Um, But, you know, understanding that, 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 that the fact that there wasn't plantation slavery in a part of the empire is not the same thing as imagining that slavery had no relationship to that part of the empire. So, you know, I don't like Newfoundland, right? This, uh, you know, Canadian province since the 1950s an independent British colony before then, uh, very far from slavery, right? But Newfoundland supplied salted cod to the British Caribbean throughout the 18th century. And salted cod was one of the primary proteins that enslaved people ate. So even Newfoundland, this place that's miles away from hundreds of miles away from the Caribbean, um, is still connected to the, the, the kind of economic engine that slavery was for the British Empire. And I think you can, you can appreciate the, the sort of moral achievement of British anti-slavery while still recognizing that the abolitionists were not practically perfect in every way. You know, if you're looking for people who mirror 21st century ideas, you're, you're just not going to find it. And I think reckoning with Britain's imperial past, I know, I, I think, you know, is a, I mean, I, I kind of, like, it's, it's nice to see kind of slaveholders and their their memory their his their the way they're memorialized in Britain being held to account like it's nice to see you know at british country houses you know plaques going up saying you know what what paid for this country house or like look at the look at the wainscoting look at the friezes on the walls like these are related to slavery they're related to the empire and i think that kind of contextualization is really important uh, and essential and doesn't take anything away from the past, you know, it, it adds texture to it and depth and sophistication. And I think that, you know, the public deserves that.
0: just wanted to ask you a bit more about the role of enslaved people in pushing forward the end of slavery, um, specifically about slave revolts. Um, I wonder if you could tell us the impact that they had on arguments about ending slavery.
1: So slave rebellions were crucial in shaping anti- British anti-slavery. Uh, But I think it's not quite true to say, as some historians have said, that slave rebellions led to emancipation. I mean, they did in a kind of chronological sense because they preceded emancipation and because a major rebellion in one of Britain's slave colonies almost always precipitated some kind of policy change in Britain. Uh, But I think some historians have perhaps tried too hard to say because rebellions led to policy changes, rebellions were a kind of self-emancipation. And in the British Empire, emancipation was an imperial policy, right? And what enslaved people received was not what they demanded. Um, And so I think that's important to bear in mind. But yeah, slave slave rebellions shaped British abolitionism in, I would say, uh, in all kinds of ways, but in one really important way that I develop uh, and try to explore in the book, uh, which is the principle throughout British anti-slavery that emancipation needed to be gradual. Um, So, you know, Britain looked at, and and this was especially marked after the Haitian revolution, right? In from 1791 to 1804, enslaved people in Haiti fought in a really complicated imperial war in which Britain actually intervened and tried to uh, send, send, you know, at at the time, the largest expeditionary force that Britain had ever sent anywhere uh, was sent to, Revolutionary Haiti, or at the time French Saint Domingue, to try to uh, uh, use the massive rebellion of enslaved Haitians uh, against their putative owners and against the French revolutionary government in order to kind of intervene in Britain's wars against France. Um, so the the Haitian Revolution, in you know, I think from our perspective in the present, we can understand it as a really complicated. Um, movement of liberation that combined French revolutionary ideology with all kinds of independent, um, both sort of Caribbean and African ideas about political freedom. But for British abolitionists, what they saw in the Haitian Revolution was the possibility of both ending slavery, but also losing imperial power. Um, And they saw in the kind of violence that both slaveholders inflicted on enslaved people, and that enslaved rebels inflicted on slaveholders as negative examples for what could happen in the British Empire. So, for for British abolitionists, it was crucial that emancipation happen to prevent these kinds of of rebellions. Um, but it was also crucial that it happened gradually and slowly and incrementally, um, so that slaveholders could be taught to be less barbaric, less brutal, uh, and so that enslaved people could be taught to be sort of Christian smallholders in a sense that they could, that they could learn um, how to accept white supremacy, but a better kind of white supremacy, right? That, 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 you know, I think no abolitionist, no white abolitionist, at least in the British empire imagined that the end of slavery would mean the end of the domination of white Britons over, um, you know, people of African descent in the Caribbean, the question was, who would be those white Britons and what kind of supremacy would they offer? Um, And so slave rebellions after became a real problem for British abolitionists, uh, something that I I try to develop in the book. Because after the abolition of the slave trade, um, many Britons, you know, led by and sort of uh, encapsulated by William Wilberforce in Parliament, argued that, um, because they all believed in these kinds of uh, natural laws of economic development that, 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 that we discussed earlier. Um, they believed that the end of the slave trade would lead to a slow, gradual emancipation of enslaved people. Um, once there were no more enslaved people arriving in the Caribbean, slaveholders would be required sort of by economic law to begin treating enslaved people better. Um, enslaved people would, the population of enslaved people would begin to grow naturally. Um, and over time, enslaved people would learn how to be wage earners and slaveholders would learn how to be employers. Um, and part of that vision of what abolitionists and slaveholders called amelioration, the amelioration of slavery, um, was the idea that ameliorated enslaved people would be less rebellious. When the Haitian Revolution happened in 1791, most abolitionists attributed the revolt to the supreme cruelty of French slaveholders and the French greed for enslaved people. So before the revolution, France imported... You know, m- tens of thousands more enslaved people than any British colony would have done, and so that was the reason in British in the, in the minds of many abolitionists, white British abolitionists, of why the slave why the Haitian Revolution happened. Um, and so, a series of revolts in eighteen sixteen in Barbados, so called Bassa's Revolt, um, in eighteen twenty three in uh, British Guiana, uh, in what in the colony of Demerara, uh, and then in eighteen thirty one in Jamaica. These three. Uh, the 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 Baptist War led by Samuel Sharp and, and his fellow kind of revolutionary leaders, uh, these three revolts were all the source of some anxiety and embarrassment for for abolitionists. British anti slavery activists, for example, in eighteen sixteen, scrambled to attribute the revolt in Barbados in a, uh, to. Um, A lack of provisions, right? To try to say, like, why are people, why are, why is, why was there a slave rebellion in Barbados? Well, it was because slaveholders were not following the logic of amelioration, were not giving enslaved people enough food. Um, And so the rebellion wasn't a sophisticated political revolt informed by anti-slavery sentiment that was both native to the Caribbean, but also imported from Britain, uh, but was a kind of like, almost like an animalistic rising, right? Because it couldn't have been a sophisticated political revolt, because that would uh, kind of put the lie to the logic of amelioration. But in fact, all three of these revolts um, were led by enslaved people who were among the kind of elites of the plantation, right? They were enslaved, but they... Did jobs like there were rangers, for example, who are, would be like enslaved men who would ride on horseback um from plantation to plantation, or they were distillers or carpenters or drivers, right? the the enslaved people who were responsible for actually, like, like um compelling um people working in the fields to work. Uh, and so these were supposed to be the people on the plant on plantations, enslaved people who were the most ameliorated, who were the closest to being, um, ready for emancipation. So slave rebellions, especially in 1816 and 1823, um, really kind of were a source of anxiety for abolitionists and led to demands among the anti, within the anti-slavery movement not for r- more rapid emancipation, but rather for imp- in renewed imperial control of the institutions of Britain's colonies. Enslaved people are obviously... And I try are, are very important to the story of British anti-slavery, but I would say that they are that the, the the interests of the enslaved are not do not align with the interests of the anti-slavery movement, or they only align coincidentally, right? They have a shared goal, which is the end of slavery. But what happens after slavery, from the view of white anti-slavery activists, and what happens after slavery, from the view of the leaders of slave revolts, are totally different visions. Um, and so, to kind of say that the Emancipation Act represented the, the, the fulfillment of the desires of enslaved people is to do a, a kind of, I think an injustice to what enslaved people actually wanted from freedom uh, and to uh, obscure what they got, which was further work on plantations, uh, four years of apprenticeship, and then a series of cascading laws that tried to keep them from political power in the post-slavery empire. Um, you know, until, independence in the ni- until the independence of the Caribbean colonies in the 1960s.
0: That was Patrick Scanlon. His book, Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain, is out now published by Robinson. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on Victorian pet cemeteries.